This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Welcome back to Passing Judgment. Today, I am thrilled to say that we are joined by Noah Bookbinder, the president of Crew. Prior to joining Crew, he served as the director of the Office of Legislative and Public Affairs at the United States Sentencing Commission and as chief counsel for criminal justice for the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. From 1999 to 2005, Noah Bookbinder worked as a trial attorney for the United States Department of Justice's Public Integrity Section. And Crew has now filed a lawsuit in Colorado. The suit in general asserts that former President Trump is disqualified from public office as a result of violating a provision of the Constitution. Noah Bookbinder, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Happy to be here. So I think the first thing we need to do is say, well, what provision of the Constitution? We're talking about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Very broadly, that section bars any person from holding a federal or state office who took a, quote, oath to support the Constitution of the United States, end quote, and then has, beginning of the quote again, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Now, before we get into the specifics of that language, I'm hoping you can tell us Who has sued here? Who has actually brought the suit? Who are the plaintiffs in this case? So the plaintiffs in this case are six Republican and unaffiliated Colorado voters. There's a law in Colorado that allows for uh, voters to sue to remove from the ballot anybody who is not qualified to serve in the position that they're running for. Because this is dealing with the Republican primary, these are all people who can vote in the Republican primary. And it's actually a pretty remarkable set of plaintiffs. Uh, It includes Norma Anderson, who was the Republican majority leader of the Colorado State Senate and the Colorado State House. It includes uh, Krista Kafer, who is a leading conservative columnist for the Denver Post, uh, as well as Claudine Schneider, who was a Republican uh, U.S. representative. These are not a bunch of liberals. Uh, These are people who, uh, across the ideological spectrum, who care deeply about the Constitution and about protecting democracy. And Noah, more important than they're not a bunch of liberals, what I heard you say is that Colorado has a law that specifically allows these voters to sue. And of course, what I want to do partly during our time today is talk about kind of the thresholds or hurdles that this suit needs to pass. This is a state court action. It's filed in Colorado. And Colorado has a law that specifically says, here are the types of plaintiffs that have standing to sue to say this particular candidate who I have the ability to vote for, this candidate cannot be on the ballot. Absolutely. Yeah, the law makes clear that this is a, you know, there is a state right of action to do exactly this. And and there's case law out there affirming that uh, voters can go to court to uh, challenge the qualification of, of people on the ballot in Colorado. Now, There's another procedural question that I have seen people talk about, and that's something called ripeness. Can you talk to us a little bit? I mean, it sounds, it is what it sounds like in the sense of 
is this case ripe for review? Has the controversy or conflict already occurred? Now, of course, it's slightly different in state court than in federal court. But can you walk us through what I view as that second hurdle, which is, is the case ripe? Yeah. So uh, the question there is, you know, is there a controversy? Is there something happening that 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 a court can appropriately consider? And, you know, in this case, Donald Trump is already has declared himself a candidate for president, you know, nationally. Uh, he's raising money. He's he's giving campaign speeches and he is eligible under Colorado law to file paperwork for the primary. And one of the things that that Colorado uh, law allows is to go to court to prevent prevent an imminent wrong, an imminent illegal conduct. So, you know, because any day today on, Donald Trump could file paperwork and the Secretary of State could put him on the ballot. That is a you know that that is in our view a legal wrong that has to be stopped and you know because he's he's in a place where he said he's running we know he's running he can go in and declare that candidacy this is ripe and it's something that has to be litigated before ballots are printed uh, just a couple of months from now and so it's time is of the essence. So the argument is this is imminent. There's nothing that we need to wait for. He has said, I'm running. Uh, he has said that in political ways, in legal ways, and therefore there's no need to wait for him to take any other steps before the suit is filed. So I think that covers the kind of initial procedural, can this suit even be heard in federal court? And I'd love to talk because I think people have these questions about some specifics of the 14th Amendment. Before we get into what does this word mean, can you remind the listeners of the context of Section 3? I mean, why do we have Section 3 at all? Right. So this is part of the 14th Amendment. I think people are familiar with some pieces of the 14th Amendment, obviously the Equal Protection Clause and birthright citizenship. Um, and all of this was added to the Constitution in the, the years right after the Civil War and and was really meant to address you know some of the the dangers and, and evils of the Civil War. And this one piece, which uh, most people don't know about, don't remember, was included in there for a very specific reason. It, it, it was meant to ensure that the people who attacked our democracy not be put back in charge of it. And that was specifically, you know, right after the end of the Civil War, uh, where the, the Southern states came back into the Union, and it was a question of who their representatives were going to be, uh, both nationally and, and locally. And it was something that actually wasn't litigated a whole lot even then, because there was widespread understanding that the law was that if you were a Confederate, um, you were not allowed to, to hold government positions. There were some cases, though, uh, individual instances of, of people who did try to hold office and there was litigation. And, and uh, you know, there are cases that, that we can look at today from from that era. Could you tell us a little bit about those cases? Because I'm familiar with a case that Crew brought in New Mexico. And I want to talk about that case. But first, I don't think listeners will be aware of those, in my view, kind of original cases that interpret Section 3 and envision when it can be applied and by who. 
Yeah, I mean, so there, those cases are primarily in, in state courts. They're in generally state Supreme Court de- uh, decisions that we have, you know, passed down to today. And, you know, unsurprisingly, in a lot of cases, they are, they are cases where the law is, is, you know, which are sort of testing the, the limits of, of this provision. Um, and so you have cases of people who were like, for instance, there's a case of a, a, a person who, didn't actually fight for the Confederacy, but was a sheriff in a Confederate jurisdiction. And you have a state Supreme Court saying, you know, that that is enough. That is somebody who engaged in insurrection because they were part of the apparatus that participated in this insurrection. There are seven of those cases overall. And so the case that you referred to, uh, you know, where crew represented New Mexico residents, filing suit to disqualify from office a county commissioner in Otero County, New Mexico, somebody who uh, was on the steps of the Capitol on January 6th and, and went on a bus tour recruiting uh, people to participate in, in, in that insurrection. And ultimately, the court determined that he was disqualified. He was removed from office and he's, he's barred from office in the future. So those are the, as, as best as we can tell, having called the historic record, the eight court cases, uh, on record for this. Uh, but it was something that applied much more broadly, as I said, in the, in the post-Civil War period, because people just followed it. So the New Mexico case is interesting to me and leads into my first question, which I hope you can walk us through, because that involved, I believe, a county officer. And in this case, we're talking about a federal officer. We're talking about uh, potentially the next president of the United States. So, and the past president of the United States. Now, just looking at the plain language of section three, it says federal office or state office. Why is it clear to you and why should it be clear to the rest of us that that includes the presidency? Because there's other parts in the constitution where it specifically says president. Here it doesn't. Is that a legal hurdle at all? I mean, it is certainly a point that we expect will be litigated. It is something, you know, it's something that has been uh, written about. Former Attorney General Mukasey wrote a column saying that, you know, it doesn't apply to Donald Trump because of that point. The really highly regarded Federalist Society scholars, uh, Professors Spout and Paulson, also wrote about this saying it's very clear uh, that the president presidency is an office for the purpose of the constitution and and so i'm not going to go too far into it because i do expect it um you know to be a, a point of litigation but the the constitution discusses the office of the presidency throughout the document it's something that that comes up again and again and in a lot of instances where it simply wouldn't make sense it, it in some cases it I think it, t- it talks about the office of the presidency and other federal offices. You know, the, the, uh, you know, particularly we're in an era where people are looking at the text of the constitution and there, there's just a whole lot of textual evidence that the presidency was thought of as an office by the people who, who wrote the constitution. Well, and if you think about the purpose behind Section 3, which is to essentially stop somebody who's trying to undermine our government from within, then again, representing our government, it seems to me that that would apply just as much to a county commissioner or a sheriff as to the person who is seeking to be the leader of the executive branch. I mean, it seems to me it wouldn't make much sense that it could apply to a state lawmaker, but it would not apply to the president of the United States. 
I think it would, it, it, yeah, it would be utterly counterintuitive uh, to, to say that, you know, we're, we're worried about somebody who engaged in an insurrection being in most positions, but not in the position where they would have complete control of this democracy. I, I can certainly imagine that the the drafters of the 14th Amendment may have said, may have said they, they, they didn't need to get too specific about that because it's hard to imagine that it would ever be an issue with the presidency. And yet here we are. And yet here we are. So next big question, who makes the determination that the person in this case, the former president who you're seeking to disqualify from the office, who gets to decide that he engaged in an insurrection or gave aid or comfort to those who did? I mean, my understanding is it doesn't say you need a criminal conviction, but what do you need? Who makes that determination? We think the law is quite clear that you don't need a criminal conviction. If you look at those eight cases that we talked about, both the, the Cooey Griffin case in New Mexico last year and, and those uh, Confederate cases, there's not a single one of those cases in which the person who was disqualified was charged with or convicted of insurrection. And so this idea that, well, you know, unless you have somebody who's convicted of insurrection or an offense that essentially mirrors insurrection, you can't have this. The the case law certainly doesn't bear that out. And it doesn't honestly, you know, really match with the the statutory scheme. Um, You know, this is not a criminal punishment. We're not looking to uh, see anybody uh, put in prison. It's the same as if a 23-year-old uh, ran for president, you would say that a, a, a court would determine whether that person meets the constitutional qualification. The Constitution says you got to be 35 to run for president. A court would hold a hearing and, and determine by a preponderance of the evidence, because it's a civil proceeding, wh- whether that person is in fact 35. And if not, they're disqualified. It's really, um, obviously, the, the, the circumstances are more complex and arguably more consequential here, but it's the same principle. So the court that's considering the question holds an, an evidentiary hearing. In this case, we now have a date for an evidentiary hearing. That's October 30th. Uh, likely will take several days, uh, um, you know, a week or, or potentially a little bit more and listen to evidence and, and, and hear testimony from witnesses and then make a decision. And that's exactly what the court in the Cooey Griffin case in New Mexico did. Mr. Griffin has, had been convicted of a misdemeanor trespassing offense. Uh, so nothing that conveyed insurrection, certainly um, nothing on anywhere near the level of seriousness, for instance, of the offenses that, that Donald Trump has been charged with. Um, and the court in that case heard witness testimony, both from eyewitnesses and experts, and um, you know looked at, at the law and determined, first of all, that January 6th and the events leading up to it did constitute an insurrection for the purposes of the Constitution. It's the only court to have considered that question. Uh, but it's a conclusion that every branch of government has, has reached in, in different contexts. Um, even Donald Trump's own lawyers conceded in, in the uh, second impeachment trial that January 6th was an insurrection. But so the court would, would determine that. There's, as I said, there's, there's some good, good precedent for making that finding. And then the court would look at, uh, the evidence of whether Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. Uh, we think the evidence is overwhelming. Um, but obviously, you know, that's a, a question that, uh, courts can have to take very, very seriously. And I think this is a question that is somewhat conflated with, but I think is separate from the question of, 
was there an insurrection? And did Donald Trump give aid or comfort to those who engaged in the insurrection, which is who has the power to enforce this particular provision? I know it sounds like I'm being repetitive here, but can it be a secretary of state? Does it need to be a state court judge? I think there's some maybe confusion because there's a determination about was there an insurrection? Did Donald Trump give aid or comfort to those who engage in the insurrection? But then you still need somebody to say, and therefore, you're not on the ballot. And who is that someone? Or are there a number of people who are empowered to do that? Yeah. So what's interesting here is you have sort of two things going on at the same time. One is that you have the United States Constitution, which says that, you know, this is a qualification for office that just like you got to be 35 and a natural born citizen, you also have to have not engaged in insurrection. And so that is a, a standard that applies. It's a qualification that applies nationwide. But ballots are actually administered state by state. And each state has its own process for who determines, you know, um, who can go on a ballot. In many of those states, it is clearly spelled out in, in statute how that process works. In some states, it's not. And so it, it varies that there are states that make clear that there is a process for citizens to go to court and have a judge determine qualification. Uh, there are other states that set up uh, an administrative procedure, either a secretary of state or an election board can hold a, a proceeding that's not a court proceeding, but but operate similarly and make that type of determination. Um, you know, state law, in some cases, either separately or in addition to those processes, says that secretaries of state uh, have the power to place on the ballot qualified candidates and, and, and exclude from the ballot unqualified candidates. Um, so I think there are a number of ways of getting there. I do think that secretaries of state in a, many states uh, likely are um, empowered to make this determination. Uh, the, certainly the sense that we've gotten from secretaries of state in their public statements is that many of them are open to this process, but reluctant to go there without a court ruling. And so, you know, I think it will be interesting to, to see that, that if we have this court determine that Donald Trump is disqualified, and we certainly feel like the, the facts in the law are quite strong, um, that you may see secretaries of state following that up with their own determinations. No, I have one more legal question, and then let's end with a policy question. My last legal question is, we have obviously emphasized that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is part of the Constitution, and that the Constitution lays out other qualifications to be president. They lay, the Constitution lays out how old you have to be, residency requirements, where you have to be born, which is obviously this country. Does it matter that Section 3 is part of the Constitution as opposed to a piece of legislation? Well, I think it. I think it absolutely matters. Um, you know, it, it matters first of all, uh, in the sense that that this is the supreme law of the land. The Constitution is not optional, and and there should be no question that we have to follow what it says. But I also think that when you are thinking about you know, some of the uh, defenses that that are likely to come up in in considering this kind of issue are constitutional defenses. You know, what about the First Amendment? Um, and it's important to remember that this is a, this is an equal part of the Constitution. So those things have to be. Um, you know, if you have a, a 
a law, a statute that might bump up against something like the First Amendment, the Constitution is going is, is going to take precedence. But when you have two pieces of the Constitution, they need to work together. And you know the, the folks who wrote this part knew about the First Amendment and assumed that these two pieces could coincide. Right. This is the 14th. The first was already there when this was uh, drafted and ratified. And Noah, I think that actually answers the last question, which is I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to the idea of, well, leave this to the voters. So why are you going to court to have state judges and or secretaries of state say, we're taking this decision away from the voters? And that's anti-democratic. And I think your previous answer really addresses this, which is because the Constitution says so. But do you want to explain why you think this is maybe the opposite of anti-democratic? Yeah, absolutely. I, so first of all, as you said, you know, because the Constitution says so is a, is a pretty good answer. The Constitution is, is, is kind of the rule book for our democracy. And nobody says it's anti-democratic. I want to vote for this you know, 22 year old, because I think they'd be a good president, um, but you're not letting me. It's in, it's in the Constitution. We all obey that set of rules. But this particular rule is specifically set out there to protect the democracy. Um, so, you know, what was anti democratic was Donald Trump uh, refusing to abide by the results of an election and trying to overturn the votes of millions of Americans. This provision of the Constitution then comes in and says, when you have somebody, acting in that kind of anti-democratic way and, and refusing to follow the Constitution, this provision is going to come in to protect our democracy against further harm from that person. Say, you can't, can't put that person back in charge uh, because they could attack the democracy in a similar way again. Uh, so this is specifically meant to be a kind of pro-democratic uh, protection. And I think it's it's particularly acute in this case where, you know, when people say, well, shouldn't the American people have the opportunity to decide whether they want Donald Trump to be president? The American people had that opportunity in 2020, and they took that opportunity and decided that they didn't want Donald Trump to be president. Donald Trump refused to abide by the, those those election results and tried to violently keep himself in power. Um, so the, the sort of notion that, well, we have to let the system work and we're going to do the same thing that we did the last time, but somehow expect different results um, seems maybe not particularly well-placed. And, and I think that, you know, that that's why we have this constitutional provision in there to protect us against something like that happening again. Right. And as you know, kind of beside the legal point, right, because if Section 3 is satisfied, then whether or not we voted for the president again is not the question. The question is whether or not he should be disqualified this time around. That's right. And so, no bookbinder, president of crew, you answered all my legal questions. I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Happy to join you anytime. 